This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. steve I know that guy. Episode 38. Already? Mount, Mount Neanderthal. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, like, how the hell? Like, really, what are the chances you get two guys with the same last name on the same podcast that aren't related? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, yeah, so Josh Hamilton's on the show. Uh, great listen with Josh. So he's been a director on this with the Society now for a number of years, really active in the North and uh, just doing some fantastic work. Um uh, on this podcast, is pretty cool. Josh jumps into a bunch of stuff, um, mm. and and actually, he, he he was on the edge of tears. I think he was pretty emotive there when he started talking about uh, special stuff. chief permit. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Like, I can't say I blame him. I really yeah, can't. <laughs> yeah, very emotional. Um, which is cool when you see a guy like that that's so passionate about wild sheep and conservation and about hunting wild sheep and see him that um, you know that involved and emotional about it it's pretty cool to hear i did you can just hear it in his voice right so pretty cool uh, uh podcast i enjoyed it yeah totally totally there's there's been a few people that have won the the special sheep tag and you know that they they just they're not as passionate as somebody like josh and it was just oh cool i won an leh and they didn't really understand the the meaning of that tag behind them and yeah it's just it's great to see it go to somebody deserving that actually knows the meaning yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you know that's the thing in this job, and you know better than anyone, Steve. You you know you're at the top of the list when it t- comes 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 time to put in work and effort in, and you know you all this volunteer effort that goes in and the time you're spending. Um, and then you get a guy like Josh that has put the time in mm-hmm. uh, like that, and and to get kind of I don't know if it's karma or rewarded or whatever you want to call it, but it's just nice to see somebody that you know truly cares, and and mm-hmm. then you know the, to get a privilege like that, it's pretty cool. And you know he's going to make use of it. Like there's no doubt in my mind he's going to make he's going to take full advantage of what he's got in front of him, and he knows the seriousness of it. He's he's gonna he's gonna cash in. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, okay, just a couple of housekeeping. Um, Wild Sheep Society BC has two really cool raffles out. Uh, the first one's through a Jurassic Classic um, event, and that is a Sacco rifle with a Steiner Steiner scope. Uh, full donation from Sacco and Steiner, a beautiful setup. Um, it's almost a six thousand dollar package. I think the, is MSRP on that. Um, just gorgeous, Finlight eighty five, just stunning rifle. So mm-hmm. we've got a few tickets left. It's over three three quarters sold out already. Uh, there won't be any left at the event. So um, if anyone's keen on getting some tickets, they should do that right away. And we've got a um, so w- what is this? trailer thing it's freaking cool i don't even know every, every time i go to explain it i can't 
It, it's Doghouse Tents is uh, the donor, and it's basically a tow-behind trailer that is it's an all-in-one you've got a tent you've got your camping kitchen you've got everything you need and it's off-road capable and it's light enough that even a ford could pull it yes i'm looking in your direction kyle (laughs) so anyway yeah it's 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 a pretty kick-ass setup and tickets on that are what 50 bucks a piece and it's a ten thousand dollars ten thousand dollar setup it's it's yeah it's a ten thousand dollar tent yeah it's it's a crazy crazy setup, and that's the way a lot of these uh, backcountry escapes are going now, right? It's it's right on the edge of glamping, right? It's not quite there, but it you, you pop a button, this thing is ready to go. So it's a pretty kick ass setup, and I'm looking forward to borrowing it from whoever wins it. Even if we don't know each other, we should be friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, I'd love to have that thing too, for sure. So anyway, um, two real cool raffles uh, over to wildsheepsociety.com forward slash raffle uh get your tickets and um we're gonna sell them out and uh yeah so don't don't wait around uh, so we're on the eve of the opener here so we're dropping this on monday the 26th ish mm-hmm. um so yeah one week to go and people are gonna be in the hills i'm heading out i'm gonna be chasing sheep for the opener uh, we're front loading these podcasts ahead of time trying to get to, i think we're doing four this week so mm-hmm. so that i can take off in august then i come back and then we're gonna have to do another four so you can take off and chase caribou and sheep in september right so exactly uh, exactly good couple yeah. of weeks coming some great yeah, content so, though I'm, I'm excited for some of our guests coming up i really am oh dude well you've been working hard and you got some really cool names coming on the show and um, some big names too so um mm. you know it and and some non-traditional names as well so it's going to be fun um, I can't wait for it. And, uh, yeah, lo- lots of great, uh, guests coming on the show and yeah, I really enjoy doing this. So, and that's just one thing for our guests. Um, we're getting lots of great ideas. We're trying to get the people on here. It- it's always tough during the fall, summer and fall to get sheep hunters on here. And, uh, but we, you know, we're hearing guys want to hear more sheep stories, guys and gals. So we're working on that. We're going to try and get some really cool old, um, outfitters on the show and, uh, probably more so this winter, but, uh, yeah, we really appreciate the feedback, uh, and get, getting back to us. We've heard good reviews about the audio quality with our new podcast platform. So uh, keep that coming in. And if there's anything you want to see differently, we know this is a, a killer long one uh, with Josh, but there's so much content to cover. We're always trying to keep it around that one hour mark. But anyway, let us know what you want to hear. We'll do our best to, to deliver as always. So Yeah, don't forget to hit that uh, subscribe button as well. That's uh, how we know we're getting good engagement. We, we get some people messaging us, but we unless you're subscribing, we don't really know. So yeah, hit that subscribe button and uh, get that notification coming as soon as uh, we drop this. We're everywhere you podcast. Right on, buddy. So um, with that, um, I want to wish everyone a good luck in the hills. Uh, have a safe hunt um, and just keep uh, your mind on uh, doing the right thing from the conservation perspective. Uh, shoot the oldest ram you can. Make sure they're legal. Don't if there's any doubt, um, walk away. Yeah. And if you need some resources, get over to our website uh, and check out. We got uh, two really cool horn aging videos. One from Bill Jex, uh, one from Clay Lancaster. So great resources there. Um, oh. So don't don't hesitate to watch those. I, you know, I, I've been hunting sheep for 15 years. I, I learn every single year and every year before I go in the field, I watch those videos and and do my research. And, um, you know, one of the most important things you're going to do when you're out there in terms of conservation is making sure you shoot an old ram. So, yeah, I've, I've learned so much from those, uh, webinars. Like every, as you said, every time I watch them, it's just like, wow, I never thought of that. Like during, during this podcast, you guys aren't going to be able to see it, but, uh, 
Josh is holding, he's sharing his screen. He's holding up a beautiful Ram and I'm sitting there going, okay, that looks to be about nine and a half years old. <laughs> Don't know if I'm yeah. right, but that's what I got on it. Josh, maybe Josh can fire me a message and let me know if I was right. You know, the one I'm talking about, he's holding it and looks to be uh, past. That well, thing past was, it was a, it was a stud. Nine, nine and a half, 10 years yeah. old is what I got out of it from just watching these seminars. But yeah, there, there's so many so many things I learned from that every single time. So yeah, great resources we got there. Some great people that have uh, donated their time to us. Right on. So we'll send you off to listen to them. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Josh Hamilton, Director of Wild Sheep Society BC. How's it going, man? Good, you? Awesome. Looking, uh, looking pretty stealthy there. You got the uh, Dirk Diggler mustache. Looking good, bud. Yeah, the beard's gone, so I had to have something. Yeah, so, okay, here we are, uh, two weeks to run to sheep season, a little less. Um, so, you got anything on the go this fall? You're going to do any sheep hunting? And probably go maybe elk or caribou or something. Probably no sheep, eh? <laughs> you know what? The last few years, I haven't got a lot of sheep hunting in. I did lots years before that, but the last two years, just with younger children and work and stuff, I haven't been able to get away as much, so... I, I kind of, I planned myself a pretty good year this year. So, so um, you, what, are you going to chase stones or you, what, what's your plan there for the fall then? A few, a few, a few different types. Maybe I got uh, some to guide and some for myself. So I got a good okay. mix. Yeah. We'll get into it to the closer to the end there, but uh, yeah, I'm going to be hunting uh thin horn and big horn both this year. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Uh, that's exciting. Yeah. I look forward to hearing all about it. Okay. So you're a director with the Wild Sheep Society BC. You've been on the board now for a number of years. You do a ton of heavy lifting in the North. I know you got involved with the Northern fundraiser, but kind of your, you know, the thing I recognize you for uh, above everything is really your project work. You know, you, you're so vested. Um, and so, um, you know, can, can you just talk a little bit about how you got into the wild sheep conservation world and, and I guess what it means to you really, Josh? Yeah, I don't know. I we kind of I spent quite a few years in the mountains, and then uh, me and a friend decided to travel down to Kamloops there. And we he, he one of the friends had intentions of running as a director, and I kind of he let me us know that on the way down. And then it was a few years ago when there wasn't enough applicants to fill the spot, so I got nominated and I got voted in and. Since then, I guess my main focus has kind of been on habitat and the project side of habitat stuff. So um, trying to focus where we could bring dollars back into the north and get them on the ground. I do, uh, I have interest in a lot of the other projects around the other places of BC too, but uh, definitely I try to focus here on the north for sure. Right on. And I think that's the strength of our society. We have a really good mix of guys and girls down south. And then we have four directors in the north and you guys just do a ton of heavy lifting. And you really look after the northern fundraiser. And then, you know, that money's going into that northern account. And you guys are making sure it's spent wisely on the ground. So um, I want to jump into a bunch of the project stuff shortly. But before we do that, 
Um, what's the day job? How does tell our guests what, what you do? What do you keep your time busy with outside of wild sheep work? <laughs> well, uh, number one job is a uh, family man. Uh, I got four young children and a wonderful wife. We live here in Cherry Lake, uh, just just up the highway from Fort St. John. So yeah, that keeps me busy most of the time. We live on an acreage and have horses and all the fun stuff. So that 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 takes up a lot of time. About four years ago, I uh, I started a tannery. Um, I was trapping lots and always was learning more and more about the hide care, I guess. Um, and that kind of led to that. Uh, it's it's been a long road for the tannery side. I mean, it's for as a business development, like from learning it, starting it, finding a recipe, growing the business, building equipment, uh, and then honestly just getting it over my head and lots of it too, just having so much backlog, uh, having staff, uh, just the ins and outs of running a business really, and then that kind of hits you. So where I'm at right now is I, I had I was in, in Fort St. John set up for four years there almost, and now what I'd, I kind of call like I'm taking a controlled knee this year just kind of you know re re remission the business uh there's a lot more i think i want to try to do on the education side um for trapping and for hide care and stuff like that uh to be able to tan everybody's hide myself it just isn't realistic uh i still like doing lots for for fundraisers i I have given a lot to auctions if it wasn't for sheep and other stuff my business would probably be doing a lot better i'd probably focus on the business more but (laughs) i spent a lot of those hours in there you know thinking about sheep stuff or fundraising or projects or you know bailing work to go on meetings and but uh i don't know it's all kind of one journey in my mind so whatever whatever it is is Right on, man. Yeah, it's fantastic. So you mentioned hide care. Um, it's kind of topical and timely. You know, we're rolling into the season here. So um, you said maybe at the start of the show before we got on air that you might be able to do a little bit of a presentation for us and talk about that. So, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, I'm always trying to, um, you know, learn tips and tricks and how much we need to bring and what we need to do. So, yeah, if you got anything you can uh, share with us, I'd love to hear all about it, man. Sure. I do have a, a visual uh slide but as we talk to your listeners aren't going to hear that so i'm going to try and be as descriptive as possible um and this will kind of go through <laughs> normally when directors sign on they do uh kind of like a bio uh that goes in the magazine i never did do one so i'll kind of start share a little bit about myself i'll get into the hide care uh and go from there and if you guys have questions just ask them along the way right on man so uh I grew up in a hunting family, but not, uh, you know, not to the extent that we do now. I think my dad made a really good honest effort of taking us out. I don't know if it was just when we were around or not, that we were mostly not successful. (laughs) Um, And he never got really into the big mountain species. Uh, He did do some hunting with my uncles and stuff as far as some sheep hunting, but it was pretty combative sheep hunting where we grew up and he kind of didn't have much interest in it. But I think just the, the visuals of it, I think, uh, you know, just kind of left a mark that, you know, for me to kind of look into later in life. We did mostly just targeted deer. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a good start. So then I kind of, when I moved north, we kind of got into the mountain stuff. I moved north in 2007 and 2008. Uh, it was the first year I bought a, a sheep tag. Um, my older brother, Ian, 
uh, it's probably one of the ones I looked up to most for hunting. We, we've done a lot together over the years and just nobody just keeps going like him really. Um, but we were in before the lightweight stuff. Uh, we, we, uh, wore car hearts and, you know, external frame packs. I had a mount equipment co-op <laughs> backpack. Uh, I had, you know, just all kinds the bare necessities is pretty much what we had. We were packing canned food and all kinds of stuff. And then eventually sheep hunting kind of led me into the horse stuff. Uh, I had a good friend that was able to uh, kind of take me under his wing. I was pretty well a green dude uh, for the first hunt. Couldn't even really put my saddle on myself. And then that morphed into uh, just wanting to be more competent on the trail. Uh, so, you know, riding clinics. And then I got it to own my own horses um, just for the means of being able to go to the mountains. And that kind of worked into horsemanship to where I got, you know, I able to rope and drag calves and uh you know raining and just everything you can imagine uh cold starting has been a pretty good passion of mine over the last decade as well um it's good horses are a great thing and and it's a great way to see the country especially the north northern country but i also like backpack hunting quite a bit and uh i've done quite a few good expeditions I think, I think like later on we'll get into the discussion about more sheep hunting stuff. But like, if I had a goal, a lifetime goal, I kind of think sheep hunting is like, a, it's like a lifelong story. You know, almost like a, your whole life is like a artwork of of adventures, uh, backpacking, fly in, uh, boat trips, horse trips, kind of all all makes into one, and none of the same. And uh, if I could get a hundred sheep hunts in my lifetime, that would be. Uh, life well lived in my mind and yeah with my brother again we've seen lots of stuff over the years uh we've been able to go into uh places on horseback for bison uh i've gone uh over some pretty historic trails and seen some sites um i was able to help my father-in-law uh when he turned 40 we went and got him his first stone sheep uh that was pretty special it was my brother-in-law was along as well uh, I've been able to help, uh, some young, some younger people get their sheep. Um, but like I say, I've been hunting a lot with my brother. Uh, and this is from stone sheep to California bighorns. Uh, I've done very little Rocky mountain bighorn hunting and then some doll sheep hunting as well. Uh, I've been pretty lucky to be able to guide in the Northwest territories as well for moose caribou. Um, Mackenzie Mountains are just some of the last real untouched wilderness there is out there. I mean, there's no, there's no seismic line, no roads. Uh, when you're flying over it, you're just seeing caribou trails, you know, interweave the willows down below. That's a pretty special place. Um, the moose there are ridiculous. Uh, you know, I just the, the the size of the animal once you get it on the ground, uh, it's just it's just pretty overwhelming to deal with a bit. Um, I've also got into the, the, the cat hunting. I think with, with, uh, anyone's evolution in sheep hunting, I think eventually you'll get into the cat hunting side of it. The cat, cats and sheep kind of go, you know, like peas and carrots when it comes to, uh, to out there on the, on the land. And, uh, so those cats can have pretty big effects on sheep populations. So I chose to find a hunt. I didn't have dogs. I found a hunt, uh, from a guy that I ended up actually guiding sheep for later on. Um, and he was able to take me out cat hunting. The first year I was unsuccessful, but we treated a bunch of cats. We were kind of hunting a certain Tom. Uh, 
there's a lot of work for anyone that thinks it's just going up and shooting a cat in a tree. It's not that. So, uh, so Josh, how, how are you hunting them then? Like if you weren't using dogs, you were just, you find tracks and then you just track them by foot or how did you do that? No, the outfitter had dogs. Sorry. Uh, I was oh, he did. like, okay, we, we didn't have our own personal dogs to do it with or any oh, okay, yeah. friends is why I went with the outfitter. Uh, right. But once then we had dogs, we usually ran four. Uh, you know, you'd cut a track, you kind of try to circle it up so that you can make sure that you're on a, a fresher track and it hasn't left the area. So you do your best to circle it up. Sometimes there's canyons and stuff where you just can't. And then you let the dogs out and, you know, we've had the cats circle on their own tracks and the dogs will get going in a loop. Uh, we've had them go down through bluffs and hang the dogs up in cliffs, uh, you know, and then kind of the rule of thumb was never let let out after 3 p.m. in the afternoon because you're just asking to be running all night long. So, you know, sometimes you got to catch up to the dogs, get ahead of them, get them caught. Uh, but we were hunting a certain cat that was kind of in sheep areas. Uh, never did get it. I think I bought on a seven-day hunt and we hunted 11 days. <laughs> and then uh, I got to go back the next year and we were able to uh, to get everything finished up and was successful on a great tom. Um, and I got into the trapping, uh, up North here, we got a lot of lynx, uh, they kind of cycle with the rabbit population and lynx trapping has been some of my, uh, some of my favorite, uh, just beautiful fur and lots where I was working too. I got into the wolf wolves is probably why I got into trapping. I could see what, what was happening with the moose population mm -hmm. around where I was working. Um, there's just a lot of winter access and the wolf tracks were everywhere and you would see, you know, it got hard, hard to be able to find a cow. And then, you know, you definitely wouldn't see a calf with it by March. So uh, we got fairly successful and fairly proficient there. It's uh, That's a learning curve too. You'll, you'll lose sleep. It spent quite a few years to be able to be proficient at it. Um, but that was, uh, it just spending that time outdoors in the forest and just kind of paying attention to the nuances of how things move. I mean, the whole, tar the whole idea is that you're trying to get an animal to be, you know, come to your location and put its body in a certain position in a certain way. Um, you're, you're, you're playing on all those nuances of the moving ecosystem, which I think is pretty neat. And the trapping kind of led me into, uh, like I say, the hide care, you know, the nothing's worse than trapping something and like finally, finally meeting your goal and then, you know, screw it up while you're skinning it. Um, some of these fur bearers are pretty thin skinned and kind of the, top you know quality was always a top of mind so uh when there wasn't much fur dressing in the area um i started to look at you know youtube and other places where you can learn and there wasn't a lot of information at the time and there was actually a course down in montana it was a month-long course <laughs> i talked my wife into letting me go down there for that and i took a month off of work and went to montana and took a, tan a commercial tanning course and that kind of gave me the recipe and then I came home, uh, spent a bunch of time building all the equipment and, uh, and kind of refining my own recipe and techniques. I was training some staff. Uh, you know, we did everything from uh, weasel and er like a white, white ermine all the way to, uh, to bison. Um, some of those bison are big, man. Like I did, I did one full body bison that I ended up doing a dry tan and it went over to Poland. Um, some big farmed bison. I mean, their, their leather up on their neck is about, you know, almost, almost two and a half inches thick, two inches thick for sure in some spots. 
um, that the whole big face shield above their eyes all the way to the to the top of the tuff is it's like a shield you know it's just scarred up scars scars so when you start fleshing that down that whole hide you got to get down to the to a uniform thickness so that it can stretch nice for the taxidermist and that's what you want if you have it too thick it'll start to uh it dries and it'll shrink more over time and then you can start to have a drumming uh which is a scenario like where the hide starts to pull off some of the low spots on your form over the years so i mean a hide is just going to continually dry so if you got a mount near like a heater or your wood stove it's kind of always not the greatest place for them so you want to have some humidity control in there as well but when we're looking at hides for taxidermy, the main thing we want is a lot of stretch and very little memory. We want that stretch to be um, out to pretty much the size it is at when the animal's alive. As soon as you cut it off and that moisture starts to come out of the skin, it's constantly shrinking. So the, the, the really big, the big thing of tanning is if you're going to salt or dry, air dry a hide, like trappers air dry or salt it, you're... you're removing all that moisture content, your hide can shrink up to 25-30% in size. So what we do is we have to rehydrate that, stretch it back to its life size and thin it out, thin out all the fat and take all that, the uh, fat dissolvable proteins uh, out of the leather so that no rot can happen after we're finished the tanning process. So getting it thin is key. Uh, I got to do a lot of uh, see a, a wide array of animals and especially what I think is unique compared to part of what a lot of tanners get to work with is I get a lot of work with a lot of northern creatures so a lot of wolverine uh, a lot of wolf uh, a lot of lynx just neat things that you don't see a lot uh, you see lots of guys processing a lot of coyote or bobcat and raccoons and other things but uh, I definitely get my share of the northern northern creatures and like I said before like this is this was still on the side of my nine to five. Uh, I rented a shop in town and, you know, I'd be, some days I'd be there at 5 a.m. Uh, sometimes I got to take the kids with me on the weekends. Um, there'd be times where stuff is going through the process. It's very much a batch system. So things run for a certain amount of time. Sometimes I'd be setting my alarm to go back in at midnight and swap something over so that I could have it ready for a customer the next day. Like it was just, <laughs> it was a lot of work. <laughs> But uh, like I said, I got to see some, do some new things. I actually got to tan uh, crocodiles from Namibia. Um, and the whole time, kind of get to take the family through the whole process and get to bring the children up uh, through that. So what I'm going to go through today is I was at one of our life members, um, Chad Taylor from Fort St. John here. He has uh, black belly mouflon crossed sheep and he had a ram that die uh you know these old bat rams and bastard groups they're pretty aggressive on each other they get to a certain age and this ram got its horn hooked in the fence and pretty much the younger upcoming rams took the opportunity to pretty much beat him to death but uh you know waste not so we decided to uh to do a skinning demonstration. So I brought it to my shop and I set up the camera and I did these step-by-step -step instructions that I'll try to go through um, just through the audio here and I'll try to be as descriptive as possible. But uh, the, I guess the main thing is here is you, I want to give some kind of idea so that when you have a sheep down on the mountain, there's not too much question uh, of the steps you got to take uh, 
to be able to preserve that hide or at least to get it home uh, with all the pieces necessary for the best work to be done. Um, one thing some might consider beforehand they go is kind of their budget and that kind of figures out if you're going to be like a full body, a pedestal or a shoulder mount. And that'll kind of start to play into where you're going to have some cuts. Uh, one thing I see a lot is hides that come in for a shoulder mount, but they're pretty much cut off at the back hips. <laughs> and that just makes a lot of extra stuff to tan and you're packing more weight that you're never going to use. So, you know, for a shoulder mount, you want to be the back end of the brisket well behind the front shoulders, a pedestal mount. I mean, you can go further back, go back to the back of the ribs, if not a little bit more, just into the flank area. And then obviously a full body, you're going to be taking the whole thing. And so when I get the sheep there, like you want to find it if you're on the shale slide or on a rock slide or whatever, you know, find yourself a flat spot. And sometimes you got to kick some rocks to, to uh, move stuff out of the way. <clears throat> and... One thing I'll say here is that a lot of work should be done either with a sharp knife and some work is better done with a dull or a thicker fixed blade knife um, that you can actually pry and leverage a bit with. Um, I know lots of guys like just to pack the Havilons, but I've seen a lot of sheep, sheep capes ruined with Havilons as well. So I, I recommend both. Um, the first cut that a guy wants to make, what you're gonna do is you're gonna try to peel this off in an orderly fashion. So I like to do it to where you can deal with the legs, then you can deal with the body to the head. Uh, then you can start to do it as you're pulling meat off as well and kind of keep everything clean and tidy and then just have your bags open to be able to put stuff in. So the first cut I like to do is on the feet. I go to the back feet and on the back side of the the hoof right between the dew claws i'll take uh, my Havilon and i'll do a nice straight cut all the way up above the hawk on the back leg uh the next cut i'm going to do the same on the front legs and go right to the back of the hoof on the, this on the back side of the leg and i'm going to follow that hairline all the way up and up above the knee once i get that done i want to take my doll knife and this this leather around the shank above the hoof it's there's not a lot of fat there uh, and it doesn't peel very well. This is a lot of times where I'll see knife holes uh, going through the, the hide here. So use your dull knife, go all the way around the bone and all the way up to your cut above the hawk. And that way you can cut right through uh, the joint and kind of open it up there. And now what you have too is you'll have, uh, you'll have the shank that's still attached to the hoof. Now the only thing attaching that to the rest of the animal is the hide. Um, what this does is now you can use that shank to actually pull uh, the leather away all the way down to the top of the hoof walls and you can actually use that weight to pull on it and stretch it with one hand and then have your knife in the other hand. So you'll just start to cut away that fatty tissue and you're, you're pulling on the shank and you're kind of cutting down towards the hoof now. Um, you'll start to see where the two toes, they kind of go to a sheep and I'll have the, the two toes spread out and you can start to see where you can cut between them. Uh, and you're going to want to do the same on the front and back. Skin all the way down to the top of the, the hoof wall and, uh, and start to separate your toes. From there, you can take your, your rigid blade knife and kind of cut through the what would be the wrist joint. And that way you're going to have two separate toe bones going into the hoof. Um, from there, you want to take your Havilon and you're going to start to just narrow down on the inside of the hoof wall along that joint. So... What you'll see is you'll see the two the two toe bones coming out of the hoof. Now there's one if you can imagine there's one more joint down inside there. 
what I like to do is I like to cut down sometimes on the hoof wall on the inside and the back edge. That'll cut all the way down. That way I can just have enough room to get my knife in and pop that last joint out. And then, you know, you'll just cram salt in it after and that's going to be totally fine and it's not going to rot. But I've seen lots of times where these toes get left in for, you know, up to four days, five days while they're backpacking out or getting out and getting salt in it. And uh, that's just not what you want to do. So yeah, just work your knife down inside. You'll get to that joint and you can pop that out and then you'll have two nice empty toes. Now that you've done that on all four feet, uh, the next step I do is the dorsal cut. Um, what that is, is pretty much up the length of the spine, pretty much from four to five inches above the dock of the tail, all the way up the spine, and then right to the back of the head. This is where I like to use the straight knife as well. If you think somebody's got to sew this together later, the nice straight clean edge is the best. Um, I cut right up to about one to two inches from the base of the horns. That way, when I'm finished, there will be a skin tab that comes over from the front side through the base of the horns, and it'll have a triangular piece on the back edge about one to two inches. And that way, uh, the taxidermist can have something to sew against. Uh, you do want to be careful because sometimes it gets pretty thin in there, and that tab can break off pretty easy. From there, I start to skin down uh, around the edges of the neck and to the front shoulders. And pretty much you can get all the way around the base of the neck here. Uh, and just removing the hide all the way around. And as you start to continue your cut edge along the base of the horn, um, it's a good idea. You can take your finger and stick it inside the ear. What you, what you want to do is you want to cut down deep enough to actually just cut the, the ear canal and you don't want to cut the base of the ear or the hair around the ear. So you're cutting around, stick your finger in the ear and you'll kind of feel and just be able to cut below your finger and you'll get right through that ear, ear canal. Uh, next what knife step, do you recommend for that? Sorry, Josh, what knife do you recommend for that? A sharp one or uh, that, one of the dull yeah, ones? That you can use a sharp knife for that. Yeah, I liked, I do like to use... Some guys like to use a dull knife up along the base of the horns, and they're actually cutting up towards uh, the base. Lots of guys will actually use a flat blade screwdriver. And the, that's the thing. The hide is really strong. You can you can really pry on a hide with a blunt object, and you're not going to tear it. Uh, it'll, it'll always want to pull away from, this, from, the, from the membrane instead. Uh, but I like, I like the sharp edge, and I actually cut up along that that base of the, uh, the horn. But uh, when I get down to the ear tube, I'm going to cut with my sharp knife. And then most, most other things on skinning wise, I use a dull knife. Uh, when I, when I do my straight line cuts or my finishing turning work, then I get into the dull knives, uh, the sharp knives again. Sorry. Um, Next step is I go right to the back, uh, the last vertebrae from the base of the skull, and I'll take my dull knife and I'll just do a cut along there, and that'll open right through the spinal cord, and then you can pretty much now now what you have is the head, the head is completely removed from the neck, but its face the face of the animal is still attached to the hide, so you can kind of pull that aside. Uh, now what you'll be able to do, oh, I skipped a slide. Now what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to skin all the way down the brisket, uh, the front shoulder, uh, the ribs. And this is a good time. I like to take actually off the neck meat. I'll, I'll take off this front, the front quarter uh, and set that in my game bag. And then 
I can cut that whole side of the neck off in one piece. And then the next piece, once I get that hide further back, is going to be pretty much the whole rib and brisket. So now I can pull that hide. Now that I have, I was because I skinned up the front legs as well earlier past the knee, I can now pull this pretty much right back to the, the hide right back to the belly of the sheep. And I can have that both the whole front end exposed of both front quarters, both, both sides of the neck. Uh, I'll leave the bottom side, of the ribs until I flip it. That way I'm just not dealing with, uh, you know, some, some guts and stuff under your feet. Uh, the next step is I skin down over the rump. So pretty much same thing. Your legs cut off. If hopefully the animal's not too stiff, some, you know, the longer you leave it, the more rig and mortis sets in. But if you get to it pretty fresh, you can still bend this joint and push it up and actually pull the hawk bone through the hide where you cut up the leg. And now you'll have a free portion to just be able to skin over the rump uh, all the way down to the back. Um, when you get down to the back, there you want to you want to cut on the inside of the anus tube so like you can either stick your finger in or you can cut down enough of the way and pull on the hide and you'll actually see it start to come out a bit and then you can cut it um and that just you want to have some intact same thing you're going to skin down the inside of the groin on the inside of the pelvis you get to the testicles and i skin out the 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 testicles pretty detailed here and that way what i can do is i can actually cut them and I can make sure that one testicle is attached to each rear quarter just for uh, proof of sex identification. And say here's another shot that was just the inside of the anus. So now what you have is the full hide taken off the animal and it's you still have the face work to do and the, the horns are still attached but pretty much the rest of the hide is able so you can now pack this off the mountain and then it's like a nice you're gonna have a camp day the next day and then you can remove all the fat uh and tissue from the from the hide and start working on all the turning um for the face details lots of guys you know some guys don't feel very experienced especially with the sheep and I recommend if you get a deer or whatever and you're not going to do any taxidermy work, do take the time to practice this. Like, it's uh, the first time it's going to take you kind of a Saturday to do it. And you're going to not, you know, you're not going to, it's going to end up with some holes and stuff. But I recommend practicing because if you were on an expedition to where you're going to do this back, back in the bush, you have a half day camp day, you salt it and you're good. Like, you don't have to worry about ears turning, lips turning, uh, if you're going to have slippage, this is where it's going to happen from not doing the job properly here and actually just trying to wait until you get out to get it to somebody. So when you're going to prep the head, the first thing I like to do uh, is I take my sh my Havlon knife and I'm going to go right to the mouth. I'm going to open up the mouth and about a centimeter down from the lip line, I'm going to make a cut in the gums. And then I'm going to do the same thing on the bottom of the gums. So now, uh, when, when I'm going to start to skin up all the way around the nasal passage and down along the chin, and pretty much I want to open up that whole mouth, but it's going to have an in, a centimeter of intact tissue all on the inside. Um, when we're done, when the taxidermist gets it, that way it'll have a lot of extra lip for them to play with. Um, now that I went past the ear on the horn too, I can keep skinning down. I'm going to get to the eye. The same thing here. You want to leave enough eyelid intact that they have warmed, warmed room to play with. 
So I just stick my finger in the eye and kind of push it back and you'll, you'll be able to, you know, cut on the one on the bone side of your finger. So you're not going to cut through that inner eyelid. Uh, once you get down path, both eye, both eyes, then you're going to be up to the glands. Uh, do take detail there on the glands. You want to be able to get your knife in. You are going to have to work your knife in there. It's surprising how recessed they are. Just don't cut them off shallow. I've seen, I've seen that. Next step I'm going to use, I like to use my dull knife here because more you're just, you're, you're actually just rolling the, the, the gum. This is for turning the lips. Uh, imagine you have, uh, you're holding the lips now and you can see the one, one centimeter gum inside and you want to start your cut there and you're actually trying to flay off, uh, down towards the lip. You're just trying to flay this whole gum in half. Uh, so you're going to cut down towards the lip edge. And once you get down to that lip edge, you're going to be able to roll in your finger and it's going to feel like there's a rubber band rolling over in your finger. And that's, that's what you want to split is you want to get all the way down and split it. Now, the reason we do this is so that you can get salt in there. And that's pretty much to prevent any soft tissue damage or soft tissue slippage. Um, so once you're done the lips all the way around, uh, go to the nose the nose, what you're going to see is you're going to have, you cut you cut through the nasal cavities when you took it off from cutting up on the inside. So now you're going to have to want to split that cartilage. Uh, and you're going to want to, you're going to want to make the nostrils separate. Uh, so you're going to cut right directly down the middle through the cartilage. Uh, I like to keep my fingers on the backside here. That way, if you're not going to cut your finger, you're not going to cut through the hide. Um, and kind of, you want to get those two nostrils set separate. And you're going to feel the cartilage in them. And you're going to keep splitting that cartilage all the way down into the base of the nostril. Um, there's going to be quite a bit of fat left over, but we can do a lot with salt here. And then we can clean up uh, whatever extra fleshing is done. It's the whisker pads sometimes are, uh, you can cut off. And there's just a lot of flesh along the cheeks that can come off. Um, the next step would be turning the ear. Uh, same thing, the near, the ear has to get turned inside out. Um, what I use in the tannery loss is just a broom handle. So if you want to, if you're in some of those spruce, just go and get yourself a one inch branch, uh, whittle it down, really round it off. Um, so you can kind of put, push, push that on the hair side of the ear and you're, that's going to help you just roll the ear inside out. Um, you're going to be able to, what you want to end up with is that the cartilage should stay with the inner ear and you're pretty much skinning the uh, external side of the ear, the hair away from it. And if you keep pushing that broomstick in the side, you're just cutting up the the soft tissue line between the cartilage and the, and the, the hide, you'll end up with a nicely turned ear. And try, try to get it all the way to the point. Uh, you're not, it's not going to go all the way to the tip. Um, but do try to get all along the edges and, uh, and then salt after that. Uh, and your last step is the eyelid. The eyelid is pretty much like the lips. You're going to want to, uh, wait, you, I stick my finger on the inside of the ear and you're going to see about a centimeter of intact, um, flesh on the inner eyelid. And you're pretty much going to flay that out all the way, uh, to the, to the eyelid itself. And like I say, you'll have that rubber band feeling in there uh, until it's split. So what you're gonna end up with after that is you're gonna have, uh, 
the full hide off now. Uh, it's going to have clean edges all over the areas where they need to actually sew it back up. But other than that, it's going to be really easy for them to set the form inside. Um, what I like to do is for, say, like a shoulder cape or a pedestal cape, I'll just take like a 500 mil water bottle and I just fill that with, uh, I like to use table salt, really fine coarse table salt. And that's plenty enough salt. If you get it fleshed clean so that the salt can actually do its job, uh, that's more than enough. If you were, if you were going to do uh, a full body, you know, two of those would probably be better because that way you can really cram some in the, in the hooves and stuff into the toes. Um, I guess one thing else I didn't mention there is that you will need to turn the tail as well. Um, when you're cutting around the rump, you cut the tailbone off at the base. And then once it's off, um, you just want to make a small cut along the base of the tail leading out to the tip on the bottom side of the tail and uh, pull the bone out that way. The fleshing is important. I mean, if you can do a good job there, I've had some... Uh, some animals come in the tannery that uh, I, I weighed one goat after and there was 11 pounds of meat that came off the hide. So that's hot. That's meat that you're not eating now because uh, you didn't keep it with the rest of your preparation, but you packed that out. Uh, so if you want to talk saving weight, learn your hide care, <laughs> you know, um, what I said, like what I'll do is I'll do that, that work at camp and then I'll salt it. Uh, one of the worst things I think f for a hide uh, is UV. You know, if you're going to hang it, if you have the time that you're not traveling, you can just hang it, uh, you know, have a, a hitch and rail or find a tree, a shaded tree, uh, kind of fold it, salt it, and then fold it skin on skin and just put it over there so the hair is out. Uh, wind is great, um, but UV, it, what it does is it kind of, it kind of, flash dries the surface and that makes it really hard for us to rehydrate and, and, and pickle after. Um, for staining, if you've got a white animal or even if you've got a stone sheet for sure, cause it's got lots of white hair. Uh, if it gets a lot of blood, it's okay to, to wet it. Uh, I'll do all that work. Um, the, the turning and the prep and the fleshing, and then I'll take it to the Creek or the lake and just rinse it as good as you can. Um, and, and try to get a bunch of that blood out and then salt it, um, and let it drip. All that water can come back out and just let that salt work. But the key thing is getting it washed there. Those late season capes, like they're beautiful, uh, but they can also be quite fragile. Uh, sheep hair can break. Uh, I think probably the only thing more, uh, more fragile than, than sheep hair would be, uh, antelope. Um... And then repairs, I mean, we can repair lots. Uh, it's uh, it's just a matter of time, right? The main thing is when you do this job well and you take all the small details on, that, on the turning, that's where you can save a lot of time for the taxidermist as well because there's no soft tissue damage or slippage. So that's like the nose pad, is it intact? Well, if, if, if that nose didn't get turned, all that all that texture on the nose can be slipped. All the, all the pigment around the eyelids can be slipped. Um, so just take your time. They, if they have an intact piece, that's not slipped. The color is good. And they got good, uh, let's say inner, inner eyelid and inner, inner gum to work with. Uh, they're going to be pretty happy. Um, so that's pretty much it. 
if listeners have any any uh, questions, they can they can ask me or whatever. I'm pretty open with information about it. But that's it for the the sheep skinning. I think with the tannery too, it's it's just been so cool, not just to work some of the animals that I've got to work on, uh, but just make some of the contacts. I was able to do uh, you know a big grizzly bear for the for the BC uh, Veterinary Service um, that they take around and do trading with. Uh, since the very first time I became a director there, like I had a bison hide that I donated to Kamloops that night. So I've seen quite a few bison hides go through the northern and southern. It's a good feeling because I think, honestly, like I think in hides, not counting the wolf hides that I've tanned for the northern fundraiser, but just the the bison hides and beef hides, you know, there's, there's probably 10 ten fifteen thousand dollars in fundraising um the sheep i get to work with is amazing like that's that's like that's it for me i mean uh i've got to work on stone sheep desert sheep rocky mountain bighorns californias i've got to work on snow sheep snow sheep is beautiful because it has hair a lot closer to i'd say a caribou than it does a north american sheep it's it seems like uh it's a lot more velvet feeling um through the tannery uh, well, I'm just kind of part of just in, enjoying that side. I got into the, the boot and chronic club, uh, as a scorer as well. That was, uh, they're a club that, you know, I don't think it's talked about as much. I don't know if they just don't, uh, uh, aren't vocal enough. I give out some of their successes they've had, but as a conservation group, it's a really important part of North America, uh, and, 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 and the success of, wildlife conservation i think and it kind of gets thrown under the bus as like the trophy group i think but uh you know the measurement of good habitat is 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 this is a way to measure it um you know it's kind of based on uh symmetry uh being a measure of of healthy ecosystem but then you know you have all the non-typicals i mean that you have to account for some of that as well but uh you know, you can tell a lot by what you're producing. I think on the health of the land. Um, you got to meet some. I got to meet great people too. Like through the Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, through other works that I've done as director. Like I've got it from outfitters to First Nations to other conservation groups to Wild Sheep Foundation. Like I've got to meet a lot of people that I only ever used to read about. And then going into the projects, like. I've got to do stuff that I never even thought would be possible. I got to, uh, you know, working on the Northern Burn Project has kind of been the the pet project. Um, and it started from where there wasn't any prescribed fire taking place. There was one, the one year we burned the Toshodi, that was right before I got on the board, and that was in partnership with the North Peace Rod and Gun Club. And then there was some personnel change in the, in the office and, you know, prescribed fire kind of got a bad name um and as far as you know the benefits i guess or whether you're trying to enhance or what are you trying to enhance or you know just past history of burning in the north so you know our membership kind of told us that that you know they felt burning is important and and and, and really in the grand scheme of things and like maintain in, in maintaining sheep habitat it is key i think especially in the north and i think it's been going on for a long long time um 
I guess, how you scale that, how you quantify that, and how you how you prove the need for that has, again, been a lot of the project. So it kind of started in 2019. We started a project where we applied to HCTF, mainly to get the project started, and it was for monitoring. But we had to do flights. We had to assess areas. We had to kind of look at what was what kind of habitat were we looking for and what did we think was achievable, you know, against realistic objectives trying to meet, uh, you know, caribou, caribou recovery requirements of not burning in caribou habitat. So there's so much nuances of, of what the project looks like, but, you know, just being able to fly the Northern country and lots of this country that I've hiked over all these years is, is pretty amazing. Um, and it's not like you're looking for animals. It just feels like, you know, eventually we'll actually get to give something back, uh, to, to what we're trying to do here anyway. But, you know, I guess I've tried to keep it fun. <laughs> There's a lot of times where things seem super busy, but uh, you just got to remember to smile most days. And, uh, you know, the, the trip that I'm taking here, I think uh, it's kind of like my, my family supports it. My kids are being raised through it. Uh, they see what I'm doing. Uh, they're little activists themselves pretty much, but... Uh, yeah, they love it, you know, between the, the trapping and the fishing and the hunting. They're, we're raising them outdoors. That's what we're doing. But anyway, so it's kind of like I say, it's a shared journey between almost everything all happened at once. That I, I was into the tannery for about a year before I kind of got onto director. And it was just kind of the last four years, five years have been a whirlwind, really. But uh, that's where it's at now anyway. Right on, man. That's so cool and uh, love seeing that. So do the kids come and help out in the tannery? Is there stuff they can do around there? Is it, are they still a little young for that right now? You know what? They've helped. Uh, they've always helped. Uh, I actually, in February, February, I moved out of the tannery. It was killing me. Like I was just, like I say, working ridiculous hours, nine to five. And we had our fourth, which was a newborn, born right at the beginning of COVID, right? So after a while it's just like you know i was i was busting my ass everywhere and not making any progress so just like you know what i got i kind of i didn't have a lot any deposit holders i offered hides back i begged for forgiveness and i still got to right some wrongs but you know it was just like take a knee and now i'm getting set up at home so like i'm gonna be rolling and but honestly it's i just want to do it i want to do it to enjoy it i want to do it i want to tan the stuff that i catch if i can do fun readers is great but that's that's an education you know that's that's kind of where it's at for me i think right on that um yeah so tons of questions there probably um for any of the listeners and uh so if anyone has questions for you about caping or hide care any of that stuff uh how do they get a hold of you what's the best way for them to reach out to you josh uh sunrise tannery on instagram i think it's actually okay. sunrise okay. underscore tannery but kind of that's definitely my tannery channel so if you've got skinning questions or hide questions send them there for sure yeah okay sounds good yeah we'll put that out in the show notes and get uh, anyone that has questions to reach out to you that'd be fantastic um that powerpoint's great and uh offline here i'm gonna bug you we, we need to do a webinar or something on that and you suggested maybe doing that this weekend or something so 
Um, I, Steve, we got to tee that up because this is great. You know, people are going to really want to um, listen to it, and it's so topical right now. So it'd be perfect to have you share that uh, in a it'd webinar be fun format with, like a, so. with drinks in a panel. It'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Um, so, do you want to jump into this project specific stuff, uh, Josh? Um, you know, you do mm-hmm. a ton of work up there, and um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on you know, controlled burns and stuff like that, prescribed burns. We're having issues in the north and, you know, you. I think we we're dangerously close this year. We, we thought we were going to get one and then kind of, you know, the burn window came and it didn't happen. So you want to jump into that a little bit and let us know what's going on there? Oh, yeah, where to start. Um, so we, we started that burn project uh, in 2019. I think we asked, uh, it was up to 60, $68,000, I think, from HETF plus as well some of our funding and what our goal was is some of the feedback we were getting on on burning is that we wanted to be able to maintain spatial separation right so that we're not uh drawing in elk populations into these winter ranges so then there's 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 studies that have been done i guess to, to try and show uh the the benefits of prescribed fire on sheep and elk populations but it was combined it wasn't done can you do it separately and you can can you do it in ways that the elk don't find as preferable habitat so if, so we decided to focus on these high elevation uh winter ranges mostly so that we're not, it's deep enough that we're not going to try to have too much elk uh ingress uh elk kind of want more quality over quality of feed anyway uh we're Sheep definitely like the quality over quantity. Uh, so trying to maintain that spatial separation was the beginning of the project because we felt that the concerns were uh, with regard to increasing elk populations and increasing predator populations. So we started there. That was getting, finding the sites, getting the monitoring equipment out and trying to see what's there. So we had trail cams set up on the winter ranges and then we had time-lapse cameras adjacent to that looking at that location uh like from a from a broad view so we could identify what's using it and what time of day and that monitoring has been going on since uh well when did we get those out mm, fall fall of 2019 i think um and then the project un university of northern british columbia dr heather Bryan, she she approached uh alicia woods our our uh, our bio that's helping me build the program um and their, their interest was you health. So with prescribed fire, what would the hormone benefit be to the, uh, uh, the health of the females being pregnant over the winter? So that incorporated more monitoring with, uh, with pellet samples and urine samples. Uh, but that was great because it came with some funding as well for, for the preliminary flights. And they went out all together and they did vegetation analysis and recce assessments. So we kind of got a lot of data that first year and kind of tried to look at, okay, like, what do we think if, if we were going to burn for sheep, uh, where wh- what's priority area and then what's area that we think we can get an approval? Uh, sometimes those don't overlap um, based on different priorities. Um, and then kind of going into this year, you know, HETF has been great to work with. They've been, I think, very accommodating. Uh, there was, there was questions, um, with prescribed fire, like what's it do to soil degradation? Uh, 
it's all washing down downhill down slope so there was some stuff we had to look at there we, again we brought UNBC in uh, a soil specialist and went through kind of what we're looking at and we kind of proved that at that time of year those spring burns that's the benefit is that we're not we're not we're not don't have heat penetration deep into the duff layer uh, it stays right on top we're pretty much just burning the fuel on top and it's just a nutrient flush for the soil uh, the you know, and to get into the willows, yeah, you're trying to get that light out and you're trying to open up those channels for, for line of sight and predation. But uh, the main goal is trying to get the nutrients into the soil and you're not degrading the soil. Um, so it kind of did that part and then, you know, still uh, elevation specific and not overlapping caribou recovery areas. There's some science that shows that burning, they don't, well, they don't want to burn a caribou habitat, you know. Um, that's just where we are. Um, we were really close this year. We had, you know, uh, Flynn Rose, they gave us a letter of support. They're very interested in the project. Um, but they have responsibilities and they have, uh, they have checklists, right? So trying to manage a project that kind of meets that, you know, trying to be cognizant of the funds we're spending. Um, you know, so far we've had, we've had, support from from lots of different groups that have helped us get this far whether it's like uh uh river jet adventures has helped us out with fuel lots uh transporting hella fuel into where we're doing this uh, north peace run gun club like it's kind of been a group effort to get to where we're at so we had we had the burn plan submitted uh you know spring of of 2020 uh, that was for app treatments this spring um, we thought from previous discussions that going that far ahead of time was going to be key. Um, we got the application in. There was still some personnel change through the office. Uh, for about the last year, we've had the main co same contact now, which has been really good because we've kind of been able to address some of the issues. Um, but, you know, there's there's many things that they got to look at, whether it's range tenure holding, uh, um, whether it's mapped uh, ungulate winter range, you have to apply for an exemption to actually do habitat work. Um, one of our areas was in uh, parks. Um, parks doesn't have a management plan that's against natural disturbance unless you can prove rationale. But we've had actually some issues getting monitoring permits for parks. So it's like you can't prove the rationale to be able to look at it, right? So these are all just nuanced things that we kind of work through. And that's kind of, I guess, the d delay in the project. We had we had the final plan submitted, uh, I believe, by October last year. We were able to give it to them. Uh, May or May, May, late May is our burning window. Uh, March, we were kind of back together at the table trying to address any concerns. It, like I say, it was more around, um, you know, crossover tenure holders and other values. Um, and, and then we were hopeful that it was going to make it. We had done lots of pre-consultation, but the consultation period still lasted a certain amount of time. So what happened is we just missed the burn window. Um, and I think, you know, the spring that we had was quite late, especially in the North and like Northern Rockies, maybe not as much the Eastern slopes here, but the Northern Rockies for sure. Uh, the snow melted and it was green like quite quickly. Uh, I think the southern end 
we maybe could have had some better success, but there was, there was, a, there was a good chance that some of these prescriptions may have not been the right heat intensity uh, that we wanted because it was already too green. And that way we wouldn't have done them anyway. We just, if it is not going to meet the burn objectives, we're not going to light them just to light them. So when we do these applications, so we've been still been talking to Flynn about our permits and they're still in the works. They're actually going to be going to the, to a district manager now, but uh, you know, they'll be good for multiple years. So the next step is okay. We didn't spend all our funding uh, for this year because of burn execution. Um, do, do we want to proceed with looking at, like this is a multi-year project. We want to keep planning for the year two and two year year three. So that's where we're at right now. We're looking at areas for 22, 2023. We're resubmitting a new package based on these ones we have for next year. But I'm hoping that, you know, by... Over the next few months, I should see, I should see these twenty twenty one applications hopefully come back for a green light, and that and that and that and then that all that does is give us approval. It's still you have to be in the air with the equipment, with the personnel, at the right conditions, with the right humidity, the right wind, and the right temperature, and be able to execute it. So, and 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 the you know one of the th- reasons I think a lot. All our members support burning. I think they know. I think as hunters, we uh, we're in, we just know we integrally know what's good for these for the habitats. And I think there's been stuff in the past that was maybe done too large a scale, but we know the benefits to habitat there. And if we talk about wildlife abundance and being proactive instead of reactive, I think most of our members believe it's necessary. So. You know, I think lots of groups have given up, I think, on on trying to execute prescribed burns in the north. And it's kind of been important to us to kind of keep to keep pushing. I, I mean, these the, to execute these burns, in my mind, they're they're really probably some of the low hanging fruit as, as far as uh, being able to execute safely. Uh, I mean, you're burning from from above tree line up into rock. Everything else around at that time of year is still covered in snow in the timber. I mean, it's it's we're I, th- I think we're doing the right thing um so anyway it's been it's been quite the the learning um years ago in 2017 uh um oh, i can't remember the name sorry sonia but uh uh she she wrote the peacefully Yard prescribed fire management plan uh and that was fun through hctf and the government and that's never been implemented um so, it's, like I say, this isn't this isn't stuff that needs to be learned. We know that the North knows that there needs to be fire, and needs to be done for all species, uh, and it needs to be done strategically throughout different areas and different habitats across the North. Um, so, you know, that's that's the end game, I think, and I think that should be a key a key uh, key mandate of the provincial government, but it hasn't been. And, and, and it could be a capacity issue. I know it's a capacity issue, um, but it's also a priority issue in my mind, just when we see the lack of movement. How about liability? Is that a concern or not really? It hasn't come up. I think I think when 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 a district manager, if it's their it's their it's it's their name on on that, right? So 
they've they're saying that they believe in the plan. I think that they would cover a lot. There wouldn't be a liability issue. That's what I've understood, but we've never got clarification. They've just kind of said, don't worry about it. You know, once we go through this process, that's a non-issue, I think. And I could be wrong, but I mean, (laughs) we've spent hours and hours and hours dealing with this. And I can honestly say that, that, that hasn't been clearly addressed. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So what do you say in the odds are for a spring of 22 burn? What do you, what would you say percentage wise? We had a meeting this week and it was, it was scheduled for an hour and we went three and a, three and a bit. Uh, and we got a lot of work done. There was still a lot of unanswered questions. It seemed like, and it seemed like a lot of stuff that just through COVID and through zooms, we just hadn't, been time to flesh these out in detail and there's still such a misunderstanding on some points so like you know <laughs> it when you're trying to justify it to to someone who's just looking at it as a form of a checklist is like well is this is this necessary is a question and i think that's a fair question you know but pa- part of our project is and this is what wild sheep foundation funded is we we did winter compensation surveys so some of these areas overlap with where caribou work's being done. So some of our populations may seem high or the composition might be great, right? So that's going to say, okay, well, so what we're, what we're looking at as far as population composition in some areas might be stable. Does that, I don't, in our mind, that doesn't mean warrant work shouldn't be done because we look at it as a habitat value. Like what's, what's the ingrowth? You know, we got pictures. I got pictures of when the helicopter was doing the survey that, uh, uh, the rams were running through timber. The timber is like inch and a half, two inches inside. And one gets his horn hooked on the timber, you know, and he's sitting there is doing circles around the tree, you know, or you, that I posted one on Instagram of that you and lamb deep in the willows. And that's, 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 that was, I think the timestamp on that was, uh, early June, you know, so what we're trying to do is provide that top quality forage so that they've made it through the winter. Uh, maybe it's a long winter, but the first thing up is that available super nutrient grass. Uh, so I think we're looking at more on a habitat level more than uh, uh, of a population level or maybe a population like what's what's our and maybe that's a discussion we should have, I guess, is like, what's our, where, where, what population needs it the most? And I don't think those questions are getting answered or even asked enough. I think most of the time it's right now, it's where could we even burn? Like where, where, where could we burn? That's going to be meet X, Y, and Z, not affect anything else negatively and, and execute safely. So we have a long way to go to get to where we need to go. Uh, yeah, it, but it starts with taking a step, and sometimes <laughs> the people with the reins gotta <laughs> give some slack. I think, you know, to let let pros and people do what they've always done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said for sure, Josh. Um, yeah, well, fingers crossed, and just uh, great, great work you're doing there, and keep pushing. And uh, I love your positivity. You know, this spring, I texted you a few times i'm like are we gonna burn we're gonna burn and you're like you know i I thought you'd be pretty disappointed when you didn't but you just were onward and upward and press on and uh push on for 22 so um right on dude Uh, we had we had like funding approved and i had 
the ignition balls, the ping pong balls, like on speed dial, ready to order and freight them up. Like we got down to where, you know, logistically we were going to make it happen if it was last minute. And it was so hard to see it not happen. But in the grand scheme, like if these big ships don't turn fast, and I think the change that we'll make over time will be more beneficial long-term change, you know, and it won't matter who's in office at the time it won't you know we'll be able to actually manage habitat for the future i think yeah right on man um do we want to talk any other project stuff i got some other stuff i want to hit on you too but um do you want to anything else you want to jump into on northern projects are you pretty good there for now there's lots of little things uh I, you know, the other work we're doing is just trying to get dollars on the ground. And I think we're doing it where it counts. And I think our members would be real happy. So, um, like I say, having that Northern account is great. Um, our job is to spend it wisely and not throw it away. So that's kind of the balance, especially with this fire thing. Um, you know, but I think we're close. I am optimistic. Right on. Okay, um, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. I didn't brief you on this one, but um, you're our chair of our uh, Indigenous Relations Committee. Um, do you, do you want to just touch a little bit on that? Uh, this is a newly formed committee for Wild Sheep Society BC. You've headed that up. You've done so much work with First Nations Relations, Josh. Um, so just give us a little bit of overview on uh, Indigenous Relations and what the committee work that's going on uh, in your purview. Well, yeah, well, when it started... I think it started kind of our first year there. Um, and you know, as good as I do, we, it kind of started around Spencer's bridge. Um, we did the sheep count and um, some of the local groups weren't very happy with us, I think. Uh, and that was, that was Cook's Ferry. And, and, and we decided, I think at that time is that we had to do our due diligence if we wanted to, uh, see lots of these projects succeed. So we were able to have some initial conversations. And I think that's where it started. It's like, it's kind of a wake up call. It's like, man, we got to be proactive about this. Um, and then, and then into any, and, and if that's our mandate, our mandate is to get dollars onto the ground for projects. Then, and that's, that's a key part of it in my mind uh, nowadays, especially, right? Like just with, uh, with lots of, recent legislation change over the last few years. It's just something we want to be aware of and that for, for, for our society to function on how effective we are. Yeah. Right on. Um, okay. Let's, uh, I, guess, I guess, I guess there's a, more to that. I should, should answer, I guess. Um, that's been a really interesting part of the, the being the director too, is I've been able to travel over to Deese Lake, uh, to attend the, uh, uh, Taltan Wildlife Conference twice. Um, that was pretty pretty powerful. You know, it's 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 pretty key, key to see that you can have like unbiased. Uh, the whole thing was about wildlife and animals and abundance and what's happening. It was pretty cool. And to, and then you, I think you bring that many people into uh, that kind of event, and they take all that away with them for the rest of the year. So whenever they're in different conversations, they kind of can have that. Uh, so that was that was key, and now it's kind of grown to working all over, you know, to Okanagan Nation Alliance. Chris has done a lot of work. Chris Barker does a lot of work with the groups in the south, and now it's 
for the Indigenous relations side, it's bigger than what I can do. I just try to do some stuff in the North now and lots of the other groups or uh, lots of the director story that we have in the committee. Everyone's kind of working in their local area and it's, it's gone really well. Uh, we're having great conversations. It's, it's really good. Yeah, man, you've done a fantastic job. And, you know, you had a, a really strong resume of working with local First Nations. You've been doing that for years um, in the North and and beyond as well. So you've been, you know, you're a natural fit for it. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, the work you're doing is genuine. Like, you really want to build these relationships and, uh, you know, do the right thing um, for wild sheep and conservation as well. So, yeah, it's awesome. So great, great work for sure, Josh. Yeah, it's um, been a pleasure. Okay, so let's put... Let's pivot now and uh, let's talk about some fun stuff. Um, so we were referencing this earlier about your sheep hunt. Um, so tell us why I why this is such a big deal. Why is this a big year? Why is 21 a big year for you? Oh, uh, well, um, geez, I don't even know how to answer that yet. Um, I got it. I've for the last long time. I, I guess I haven't really been sheep hunting for myself. Uh, I, I did, I got my, a Ram in 2009. Um, and since then, I don't know why I was just like, a, I wanted to sheep hunt, uh, a lot with others and help others, I guess. And then maybe that sounds corny. I don't know. I just like sheep hunting, but it seemed like for myself, I was hunting a ghost, like I was hunting for something great. I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know. This is going down. The, that's not how I wanted to say that. Um, I don't know, man. It's weird. I don't, I don't, I don't, I haven't talked about this much. I'll preface this with that as I haven't been open about this at all. I've kind of been hiding it and re- dreading talking about it. Um, sheep hunting is pretty, pretty, pretty big for me. Right. So something like this is pretty heavy, but you can edit all this shit out if you want. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I drew the, the BC special sheep tag um, and it was kind of a shock uh, I didn't buy a lot of tickets. Like I just buy a couple every year just to put my name in, but I drew it and I was like, holy shit. I called my wife and I was like, honey, like I won the lottery. And she's <laughs> like, what? And I was like, yeah, the sheep lottery. And she was instantly less enthused. <laughs> but uh, but it, for me, like it's been, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a long, a long, I got that news in December. And I'll tell you, there hasn't been a day where it's not on your mind. Um, I know that's hard to, it's hard to explain, but it's uh, from everything. It's like, you get it. And it's like, wow, like this actually, like this means a lot to me because I know like sheep's my life. Right. So you're like, oh, this is, this is an opportunity. And then it's like, well, you've dreamt about it for so long. Now it's like, okay, well, what do you do? So I ask people, and people talk to me about. It, I'm like, well, what would you do? It's like, because I still like lots of times. Like, what would you do? So, uh, yeah, that's kind of where it's been. And I mean, sometimes it's almost almost feel like it's a burden. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you dream about all that time. It's like, okay, now I have to make this happen. How do I? How can I honor the tag? You know, with what it is, and with my life, like. I got four kids. I got, I got, I got, I only got so much holiday time. You always joke around like, Oh, I'd quit my job. It's like, Oh yeah. Not with family to feed. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, how, how do you, how do you make it happen? And I think, I think I've come up with a pretty sweet, uh, 
it's going to work. It's going to work. And it, the biggest thing for me is that I'm going to get to hunt and I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to hunt a, f- a few different spots. Uh, I think, I think that's the biggest thing as I want to see the outcome is I want to be able to say that I hunted like, and I really, I really did everything I could have. And for me, that's like going for thin horn, going for big horn, like being, trying to be mobile, take advantage of the full course of the season. Um, Man, like it's a it's a it's a pretty cool opportunity. Um, uh, it's definitely not lost on me, that's for sure. I think I think that's the thing. It's like I have a lot of gratitude for having the tag, um, but you know, some days I wish I could sell it. <laughs> uh, like a million first million bucks gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. And then this is gonna sour some people but uh i actually uh me and my wife i put us in for a group thin horn draw as well we both got that so first <laughs> first uh me and my wife were going on a on a on a fly-in hunt here in uh beginning of august so i'll start it off with that and then and then i'll go into later in the season i am going to guide a hunt and so it'll fill in some time too. So it's going to be busy, but I feel like I've planned. I've sent, that's the beautiful thing, you know, in December. So it's like, I've been able to kind of move some things. That was kind of part of the tannery. Just like, you know what, if I can just take a knee and like focus on this as I need to, you know, like, cause it warrants my attention and to have some, the time off that I have all fall when I'm not working to really, and my family supports me. It's been great. It's been, it's been, it's been so fun. Um, I think another thing, the only other thing I'll give a tell for is that I, you know, I wanted to make it as good a hunting experience as possible, I guess. And I'm not one thing, I guess my brother beats me up for is I walk away too much. Uh, so I decided to bow hunt it. I started bow hunting a couple of years ago and I actually got, uh, I've, I've took some time at the compound. I shot a lot in the tannery over the years and then I got some successful harvest. So then I was going to bow hunt and I was looking at a new compound and just, the, it was crazy how much they were. Uh, so I ended up going to a recurve and then I started bought a re- I started kind of geeking out on them in January. And then I kind of got everything together in March, got a recurve and I just started shooting nonstop. So I've been shooting like, as much as I can, learn it, taking bows apart, fixing my bow, like, and I've had, I feel like every problem you could have, like <laughs> string problems and tiller problems and yeah. And then, and then all the time, just learning to shoot, learning, learning the technique, learning the art of it. Right. It's, uh, it's been a roller coaster, but I think that's kind of been the fun. I think, I think when I look back, I'll be able to say I hunted and I kind of did, it was a full year thing. It was a full year, right from start to finish, from planning, hunting, uh, arrowing a sheep. I'm gonna, I want to arrow a sheep with it. I want to, I want to do, like those years that I pass stuff up. And I think that's the thing. I, other shift I've had to make is from guiding so much over the years, and then I don't care if I just get like a cow elk or whatever, wherever I'm allowed, got a tag for it. At the end, I just want to fill the freezer. Like if it's a three point bull, whatever. Um, but with this, it's like I want to, and 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 otherwise, I'm not one to to, I guess, 
shoot any sheep is what my brother would say or, or something. So this one, I'm like, I had to turn on my killer instinct. I feel, I feel like I'm going to have to get set up to do it. And it's going to be so easy to say, Oh, that's not the one. That's not the one wait, or let's go look over here. Let's go look over there. It's gonna, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm hoping to see a ram from my dreams really. And I don't know if I know what that is yet, but. So, if you had to, if you if you could, sir, and I've asked you this before, and you didn't give me a great answer, so I'm going to ask you again. If you had to, if you had to pick a species, a subspecies, what would you? What are you thinking? Are you thinking, you know, what what kind of what which one would you take? Do you think? Just sitting here today. That's I don't know honestly, I don't know, <laughs> and I think that I, think, I mean all, that just comes down to where where I think I'm going to put most of my attention. I think. I, so like it does give you two two a bag limit of two for the year right and i'm not in any yeah. capacity thinking that's realistic uh i know for the thin horn hunt coming up like it's i've been there twice and my brother's been there i think five times it is a low success <laughs> opportunity so but i'm taking my bow and right. like if the whole the whole year, if if the opportunity presents itself, and I've done everything I can to be able to execute a shot, I don't know what species that's going to be, like because I can honestly go anywhere. I know where I'm going to focus some of my effort, um, and I mean, it'd be south of Prince George, I guess, for there, <laughs> and <laughs> everything else would be north of Prince George. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, man. I, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I can't answer that. Whether it was a Rocky, like I would love, I mean, for a Rocky, what's out there, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't, I don't get to spend the last few years. I haven't been able to spend a lot of time everywhere. I mean, that's not realistic for most people. So you try to, it's the same thing as anybody else would do. You start geeking out, you start spending way too much time online. You start talking to people. Yeah. Uh, you don't know, right? So there's there's Rockies. I mean, I'd love a big dark horn tight to the nose, broomed off like your wrist above his nose. Rocky, I'd love a big deep broom Cali, you know? I can, I can, vision, I can vision anything, but it's got to be within a certain range of my bow shot now. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be thankful for for this tag. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing is I'm just excited about uh, seeing what there is. Do you envision a scenario where you get to the end of the season and you just haven't had an opportunity to capitalize with the the recurve and you just say, "No, I'm 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 killing a sheep. I'm gonna go grab a rifle and and you or, or are you committed to for an archery kill?" Yeah, I think I I think I've pretty much made the decision that I'm not going to bring a gun. I think I've made that mental switch. Um, right on. Yeah, you know, it kind of gets to the point like I'd rather miss than wound. Right. So, yeah. like, for me, I put that much more mental pressure on myself to get out and practice every day or every morning. Like, I'll go out at 5 a.m. in the summer. Like, it's so light up here now. Get out and pour, get a coffee and go shoot before the kids get up. Some nights, like, get the kids in bed, and I just shoot until I can't see the fletching hit the target anymore. Uh, yeah. And it's just, it's just if you're committed, you're committed. Uh, so... I think I've made that mental switch that I'm going to do it that way. Like that's how I want to do it. Um, 
and whatever, man, if it goes to the end of the season, it goes to the end of the season. I could still say that I hunted. No one could take that away. You know, whether awesome. I got something or not, no one could take away the year that I've got to have. So, yeah. What a great message, man. That's so cool. So can we have you back on in December to, to talk about your hunt? Well, Thinhorn goes till the end of March. All right. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So, okay. Well, we want to have you back. We want to hear the story about the hunt. So, um, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Of course you will. You'll hear, you'll hear regardless. <laughs> yeah, I, I will, but we, we want you on the show for sure. So, um, okay, cool. Um, is there anything else we want to touch on? Is there anything you want to talk about Josh? Any questions, Steve for Josh? No, uh, other than for those that don't know, I imagine 99% of our listeners will know, but for those that don't, can you talk a little bit about what the special tag is? Oh, okay. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if I know everything about it, but so there's, there's just two special sheep draws in BC. One's for a resident for raffle and one's, uh, auctioned off at wild sheep foundation every year. Um, the, they both can be hunted, uh, within any area that's a general open season or LEH tag. So pretty much anywhere a sheep is huntable, uh, big horns from, I believe the opening day, maybe five days before opening season for the regular season all the way until pretty much post rut December 20th. Um, and then thin horn, uh, would be from, I believe the beginning of July all the way through, uh, the winter and into March of the end of March the next year. Um, which is pretty, pretty interesting. So like, and that's for me, that's kind of where I get lost. It's like, how much, how cool would, a like a fly in and snowshoe late season sheep be, you know, like make something of it. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of avenues you could do there with that extended season. So that's, that's the beauty of the tag. And then the, I guess the versatility and then all that funding um, from the sale of the auction tag, a portion stays with uh, wild sheep foundation, but the bulk comes back. Uh, through the ministry and into the Habitat Conservation Trust Fund. And then there's a special uh, sheep file where that money gets allocated to sheep projects uh, throughout throughout the year. And same thing with the raffle tag. So that's a different tag. Uh, I think it's released for sale. Oh, I think I got lucky. I think most people mix, missed it now that it's online. Uh, uh, I'd say you know, when I look at just our membership alone. It's like, it wasn't fairly well represented. I don't think when you look at the odds as far as a fundraising piece. Um, but, uh, I think it's released in July or August maybe and due in September. I can't remember, but it's 15 bucks a tag or whatever at the ticket, I think. And then you can buy unlimited tickets. So I think it's been a, it's been a really cool tag for a lot of people. Uh, and it, there's that, that has its own whole history uh, once you get into the the Illuminati of BC sheep hunting. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, it's a cool opportunity. Super cool. I hope I hope I get it again in my lifetime, honestly. Like, I don't feel ready now. <laughs> and you're, but, you're, sure, you're sure the first name said Josh, right? Not Steve? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Awesome, man. Well, just super pumped for you, buddy. I can't think of a more deserving guy and a more passionate guy. You can just hear the emotion in your voice talking about it. It's almost a, a curse, if you will. You can hear the 
the burden on your on your soul really when you're talking about it and the passion behind it. So I'm really stoked for you, and I got my fingers crossed, and I can't wait to get a text with a picture of a big old uh, ram down. So really pumped for you, dude. Yeah, man. Thanks. It's a uh, it's a journey. So all uh, that's the funny thing is it's all in my it's all all this the whole build up all the pressure it's all in your mind because not you can't do anything until you're actually on the, that day hunting yeah you know yeah. and then you know what's there how's what's what's the conditions like can you get on it can you make it happen uh yeah so that's the hard thing like i have to me to me i'm just in the prep and it hasn't started yet so we'll see how it goes right on yeah Awesome, man. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show. Just uh, grateful for all you do for conservation, for the society and, uh, you know, just all the hard work you put in. And, and like I said, I can't wait to hear the story about uh, your hunt this fall. So appreciate you stopping by the show, Josh, and good luck this fall. Cool, man. Thanks, guys. Uh, good to be here. And uh, yeah, for sheep, for sheep season related stuff, uh, or not, not that, sorry, for sheep society related stuff, uh, anyone can reach out to me. I'm not hard to find. Uh, uh, Mountain Neanderthal is my main one. I go check on uh, on Instagram uh, if you want to talk about northern sh- sheep projects. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it's all good. Don't text awesome. me about the special tag though, because I won't <laughs> answer. <laughs> I'm busy awesome. practicing. <laughs> right on. Awesome, dude. Thanks again. Cool, man. Later. <laughs>